0: I'm Laura Jones, and this, this is Radioactive. Every weeknight at 6, KRCL brings you conversations with folks in the community, from grassroots activists and community builders to punk rock farmers and DIY creatives. Now, if that sounds like you or someone you know, we'd love to hear about it. Maybe get them all on the show along with yourself. So send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. Tonight, in our ongoing partnership with Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Utah, I'll be sharing an excerpt from Reframing the Conversation, this time thriving in your own body. As part of Women's Week on campus last month, EDI convened a panel of body positivity activists and professionals to discuss how to broaden our definition of beauty and health and to embrace diversity, including perspectives on race, gender identity, hair type, and body shape. Before we get there, Congratulations to Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Earlier today, the U.S. Senate in a vote that included three Republicans, mind you, among them, Utah's own Senator Mitt Romney. Well, they confirmed her to the Supreme Court of the United States. And now to rallies and resources, some things to get on your radar. Wednesday, April 13th, options for eliminating the sales tax on food in Utah, a Zoom session with Crossroads Urban Center, and Cork, a multi-faith response to poverty. Doesn't cost you anything, you just need to reserve your Zoom seat, and we have a link in rallies and resources for you. Thursday, April 14th, Muse at the University of Utah presents Chris Wilson on the master plan. As a teenager, Wilson was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Now he's a successful entrepreneur, storyteller, artist, and social justice advocate. Admission won't cost you anything, but you do need to sign up for it a link at rallies and resources for this as well. Black Bold and Brilliant happens Tuesday, April 19th, a special screening of Follow the Drinking Gourd in collaboration with the Utah Film Center and KRCL. And then Thursday, April 21st, Women Who Succeed presents a conversation with Dr. Bernice King of the King Center, founded by her mother Coretta Scott King. Women Who Succeed is a program of success in education And that provides opportunities for girls and young women to grow into leadership and confidence here in our community. To find the registration link for this and the other events, just go to krcl.org, click on Community Affairs to find the Rallies and Resources page. The Utah Women and Leadership Project has a new snapshot out about human trafficking among Utah girls and women. To find out more, I spoke with Dr. Susan Madsen earlier today by Zoom. Here's that conversation. Hello, how are you? Good.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Absolutely. I always love the research that your group does out of Utah State University these days. So tell us what brought this issue about. Is it the first time or is this a repeat snapshot?
1: No, this is a an initial snapshot. We have not had one on human trafficking among Utah girls and women. And actually, it's always been on my list of something I thought would be important because through the years I've chatted with people that really their hearts are in this and they really want to, um, help those people, um, that, that have really experienced this. Um, and so we had, uh, a faculty, uh, adjunct faculty at the University of Utah, Dr. Lindsay Gazinski, who, um, who led this research, and that is she's an expert on this topic. And so we pulled her in and, and she took the lead on this study. And, and one of the things to set the stage, it's so interesting because so many of, of people, including myself through the years, you know, we think human trafficking is only really in international settings, but it really is in the United States and it is in the state of Utah, in urban areas and in rural areas. Uh, areas of the state too.
0: Well, let's get some numbers on this from the macro to the micro as your report states.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that, that we've looked at is all the data that we could come up with. And there needs to be more data because we didn't pull in. I mean, we looked in, uncovered, moved every rock to uncover every piece of data. But what we found is uh, in 2020 in Utah, the human um, trafficking hotline which is a national hotline actually for utah received 182 tips which mostly came from community members or victims of trafficking themselves and of 182 tips 64 were considered evidence for potential human trafficking and most of them about 66 percent were sex trafficking um in massage parlors or uh, spas or or hotels and things like that. So that's that's interesting. What we a couple of other things um, I highlight I wrote this introduction in February of 2021. Just I don't know if you remember this, Laura, but in Orem in Utah County, six people were arrested for human trafficking and prostitution. And um, as I mentioned, in 2020, the 182 contacts through that hotline in 2019 157 victims and 39 traffickers were identified Um, and and my last one in 2018 the utah attorney general's office conducted 49 human trafficking investigations. So some people may say, well, that's not thousands and thousands, but that's still a lot within the state of Utah. And it's not just about the individual who's trafficked, it's about all the people they touch, right? Their families and and everything around that.
0: Well, what are the direct and indirect costs and the consequences of human trafficking? Can you spell that out for us?
1: Well, the the... Well, let me just say this. Human trafficking is a money-making industry. It is for money-making. And I I think there's sometimes other reasons, but that really is the number. And we don't know how much in Utah. We don't have that data. But generally speaking, the research says that forced labor is thought to generate over $150 billion annually in in the world. I mean, that's a huge deal. And that combines, Laura, you know, we outlined in our report really two divisions. There are some others, too. But the two main chunks are sex trafficking and labor trafficking. So um, there's and I I don't have the number right in front of me. But but most of of the um, sex trafficking is is girls and women. And about 40% of labor trafficking is are girls and women.
0: Your report also notes that human trafficking, it, it happens across sexes and gender identities, but approximately yes. 20% of victims detected globally are girls and 50% are adult women. Are we finding those stats at the Utah level as well?
1: Yeah, we, we think <laughs> there needs to be some more research. One of the things that we do when we do all these reports is to figure out what data do we have and what is needed. And so th- that that is just something we need more research on. Um, one of the issues, I, I just want to continue the, the question that you just mentioned, um, human trafficking, I talked about, you know, hotels or motels. But human trafficking, again, thinking about sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking, and there's some overlap there, happens in domestic work, agriculture, mining, fishing, factory work, traveling sales crews, uh, restaurants, construction, uh, massage, like we talked about, and other venues. Um, and and I, I have to say that you know, you think sometimes that people would just, why do they do that? Why? But but there's, you know, um, there's reasons that sometimes these traffickers withhold payments, levy high interest rates, charge for basic needs like food and housing and those things.
0: And traffickers play on desperation. In fact, I'm mindful of some stories of the war in Ukraine about women and girls and children being greeted at the border as they flee with dubious offers of help, and so there's an eye out for traffickers in that situation.
1: It is so sad um, how people really do look for the most vulnerable. And so, you know, globally, but you see some of these in Utah, you know, someone, um, some of the factors that make it more likely that somebody would be trafficked include, this is according to the research, poverty, Family separation, forced displacement—that's what you were talking about. Oppression, religious persecution, natural disasters, um, uh, restrictive migration policy, political dissension, armed conflict—is this? This is sounding just like what you talked about. And situations in which social, economic, and employment opportunities are are lacking, and also. People that struggle with substance dependence, homeless, abuse like sexual, physical, emotional, undocumented immigration status, kids that have run away from home, uh, foster care kids, uh, things like that, Uh, the the most vulnerable.
0: So what are some of the solutions or recommendations uh, in the snapshot for how folks can identify this, combat it, get involved in correcting or rectifying the situation in Utah.
1: Well, um, the lead researcher, like I said, uh, Lindsay is really the expert here. And she really pulled together three elements that we kind of buckets. And the first one is prevention. And oftentimes, I have to say this in things like, you know, I've done a lot of work in the sexual assault, domestic violence, Those kinds of things, we don't do really well. I'm just calling it out. In Utah, we don't do well at the prevention piece. So, those things can be the prevention could be like including community and school based education, you know, with kids specifically. And then, of course, parents. I mean, just reading this three, four pages can educate everybody. Like maybe I should be paying attention when I see things that someone in Utah could be trafficked. So just raising awareness and the education and those kinds of things is is one, that prevention. The second really is identification. So that is once you're educated and you, so you can think about it, like you need to recognize the signs of trafficking and provide support to trafficked persons. Um, so I think screening tools for people like in social services or or the law enforcement, uh, medical people, people dealing with uh, criminal legal settings, all of those, when you really um, have some training, even a one-time training for an hour or so to just help us pay attention, I think that that would be that that really helps us move forward. And a lot of people don't even know that there is a national, human trafficking hotline um let's give that, that out yeah um they can you can actually text help h e l p at 233 733 and the hotline is 1 888 373 7888 so that is for people that are trafficked but also p- community members there people just want you know pu- wanting to to help and just are concerned
0: we'll put that um, in the if, show notes too
1: that would be great then the third third one is really the intervention so um there are some organizations that that do help and and of course, with every issue, Laura, I mean, I'm always saying we need more funding, right? That is an issue here. Um, but there really are needs of, um, it's critical, first of all, to eliminate the threats of human trafficking so survivors can receive immediate and long-term help. Um, and that could be housing. Housing is a big one. Um services like medical services legal immigration assistance and and just many things like that and and i do want to note we haven't talked about this that oftentimes people really say well all people human trafficked you know are people that have an accent they speak a different language or they've come over the border however you know the research in utah specifically and other other places says about half are folks that we would put in that bucket, but half are citizens uh, in the United States um, that, that really have those poverty and those substance abuse, those kinds of uh, factors that they are struggling with.
0: Well, Dr. Susan Madsen, another great snapshot to improve the lives of women and girls here in Utah. For folks looking to catch up with this and other work that you do, where can people turn?
1: Great. Our website is packed full of great information. So utwomen.org. And this particular snapshot is right on the homepage. So if you get in that, you can read a short thing and get right to the snapshot, which is really only about, you know, three pages of text. So you can get a lot in a quick amount of time.
0: Dr. Susan Madsen of the Utah Women and Leadership Project out of Utah State University. Check tonight's show notes for a link. Coming up next, reframing the conversation and thriving in your own body. To get us from here to there, here is Mary Lambert's Body Love on KRCL 90.9. I know girls who are trying to fit into the social norm like squeezing in last year's prom. Guadalupe School in Rose Park needs volunteers to teach English to adult immigrants in our community. No teaching experience or a second language is required, just the desire to make a difference. More information at GuadSchool.org. This is Morgan Keller,
2: the membership manager here at KRCL. We're ramping up for our spring Radiothon, and we've got lots of good stuff in store, from new thank you gifts to special programming. Help make sure this is the best Radiothon yet with an early gift to show your support. Donate today at krcl.org.
0: Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and company, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike, The Dirty Boulevard at 10.30 with Gianni, Rich Parks checks in at 1 a.m. for I Don't Sound Like Nobody, followed by Illustrated Blues at 3, and then A Brand New Day with John Florence at 6. You can hear the last two weeks of any program on demand at our website krcl.org. For the rest of the hour, we present to you Reframing the Conversation, Thriving in Your Own Body, a panel discussion recorded last month by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion during Women's Week at the University of Utah. Moderating the conversation is Dr. Lexi Kite. She and her identical twin, Dr. Lindsay Kite, are co-authors of the book More Than a Body, Your Body is an Instrument, Not an Ornament, and co-directors of the nonprofit Beauty Redefined. Dr. Kite received a PhD from the University of Utah in the study of female body image and has become a leading expert in body image resilience and media literacy. We pick up the panel conversation as she introduces the panelists.
2: Let me introduce you to our awesome panel of speakers. I'm going to start with T. Anthony in the middle here. T is a non-binary, trans-feminine individual passionate about enabling people to discover their authenticity through self-compassion, curiosity, and making love to discomfort. They are currently a senior in the College of Fine Arts, majoring in musical theater, and are privileged to serve as the collective representative for the Department of Theater, SAC. That's the student council?
3: Student Advisory Committee.
2: Student Advisory Committee, mostly there. She believes everyone is entitled to loving their body and discovering what healthy feels like for them in a world cluttered with diet culture that places stipulations on what looks desirable or is acceptable, especially for feminine-centered folks. She is an energetic, grounded, and compassionate soul looking to spread love and light in this life's incarnation. She is enthusiastic about poetry, fashion, spirituality, and her plant children that I bet have thrived in a pandemic with all that extra love. (laughs) She's a certified yoga instructor, energy healer, and zealous freeform dancer. Next up, we have Alicia Dersaw Garfield here on the end. Alicia is a visionary and builder doing vital work for Black girls and young women in an unlikely place, Utah. Her nonprofit organization Curly Me is on a mission to educate, empower, and encourage girls from five to fourteen years old to be their best selves through community events and mentoring. She began developing and hosting events such as Change the World with Her where participants get in-person access to professionals like pilots, city planners, and news anchors to learn about different careers and ask questions. Other events like High Tea with a Twist allow girls to wear their hair in twist outs or plaits, get dressed up, and be girly. Today the organization continues to be a valuable resource for young black girls and their families throughout the state. Outside of the organization, Alicia enjoys being newlyweds with her husband, Melijah, working a day job, don't we all, (laughs) karaoke, and meeting new people. Finally, we have Kelsey Jepson right here next to me. Kelsey is a body acceptance coach who helps those who struggle with negative body image to dismantle fat phobia and love themselves through radical mindset change and body acceptance. Kelsey is also a professional actor, director, and educator. She's worked professionally for over 15 years and holds a BFA in acting from the U, from the theater program. She has also lived and worked in Minneapolis where her passion for education was ignited at the Tony Award-winning Children's Theater Company and in New York City where she served as a program director and educator with the Shakespeare Forum. Kelsey is an activist who is committed to serving oppressed, marginalized, and underserved communities with the mission to dismantle systems of body oppression. She aims to build community and empower those around her to build self-esteem, develop their voice, live in their truth, and participate fully in their own lives. Let's give a round of applause for these panelists. First of all, I I want you to tell us a little bit more about yourselves. What paths in your life led you to do the work you do now? And why is radical body acceptance, in whatever form you take it in, important to you. Anybody can start.
0: Alicia Derso Garfield of
4: Curly Me. So I'll start. Hi, everybody. Um, My path to doing what I do now um, started as a child, of course. Uh, We work with children in the organization. But I didn't think I realized until I moved to Utah how big of um, a community impact uh, I had on my life until I moved here and saw that the community wasn't as big as the community I had as a child. And so I came out here for something totally different. I was only supposed to be here for two and a half years. And that was the deadline, okay? Um, but when things changed and I just prayed about it and really started to think about what was my purpose in just existing in life, um, I started, my eyes were open to to the possibilities, and I was able to see a need and be able to provide some sort of solution to the community that I did not see, but was desperately needed in, um, in Utah. So that's why Curly Me exists um, in its form now. Tell us a little bit about that process of starting a nonprofit, yeah. how that worked. So um, I just started doing community organization organizing because that's what I that's the community I came from. my mom and dad, um, George and Beverly, they might be on the live stream. hey parents <laughs> uh, shout out to them. Uh, but they did a great job in showing me that if you see something you want to be a part of or you see something, be the change you want to see basically. Mm-hmm. And so um, I didn't know I needed to start a nonprofit. What I did was I just wanted to be a part of the community. But you really can't um, go far with just here and there. Um, so we decided to become a nonprofit and really um, develop our programming to make sure that it's a staple in the community and apply for grants because you can't do that without that certif- that certification, that status. So um, it's been a learning experience for sure. Um, My mom started a ministry-based nonprofit, but this is totally different. So I've just really been seeking information, utilizing the resources that are in the community for nonprofits, and um, using my go-getter attitude to go about making sure that we are consistent, um, we show up for people, and um, we have fun. So... That's been the process of the nonprofit. We became a nonprofit in 2018. Um, we had been doing programming since 2015. So it took us some years, but it definitely um, has paid off for sure. What does radical body acceptance look like to you? So radical body acceptance, um, going back to my childhood, I didn't realize certain words or certain comments about um, my hair or... Um, just my body, I grew up in a predominantly white space, um, so my body didn't look like everybody else's body. And um, my parents at home were very supportive, and so everything started at home. When I went out into school and I knew I didn't look like everyone else, that was okay because when I came back home, my parents were reassuring me that I I looked fine, I had a community who reassured me that you're beautiful, and this, that, and the third. But coming out here, I've realized that um, body reassurance, body acceptance is a big, big thing because you really have to seek it out. It's not in your news. It's not in your classrooms all the time. It's not in, in, in the different professions. So to me, it is accepting yourself regardless if of if you're the only one in the room that looks like you, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And but that's something that you really have to start telling yourself um, from a young age, especially growing up in Utah. And then with hair, this we can get more into that a little later. But no. um, it's it's really just learning that you can you can occupy any space regardless of how you show up to other people. How you show up to yourself is is the biggest thing.
2: Beautiful, thank you.
4: Who wants to go next?
3: Hi, Will. Yeah. Um, I'm T. Um, so my journey to Utah started four years ago when I came here for college. I grew up my whole life in a small town called Paducah, Kentucky. Um, I feel like my body journey has been very interesting because I have existed in multiple gender expressions, one that was forced upon me and decided for me, and then the one that I later came to found for, find for myself. Um, I've existed in a bigger body, um, you know, 100 plus pounds than this, so, um, but in a different, different gender identity. So it's interesting to see how the different genders expressions are treated and the expectations placed upon them. Um, so when I came to college and I was 1,200 miles from home, and not in a small religious community. I finally had space for myself to think for myself, to understand, I don't know how to think for myself. Um, So, and in a city like Salt Lake that is more of a bubble, um, it was like a whole new world to me. So, um, through inclusive spaces on campus, through friends who didn't even ask questions, no, um, you know, side eyes or glances, fully just, able to be vulnerable. um, I was able to come into my gender identity and then a year later come into a new gender intersecting identity. Um, So it's interesting for me to exist as a non-binary person where (sighs) with the body, it's like you don't feel in either binary Um, And then as a trans feminine individual, it's like, oh, I see one of these binaries that I've admired since I was a little kid, you know, like, I want to wear my mom's heels, I want to, you know, wear my blankets as dresses, um, very much things. So it's like feeling so attached to that binary, but then also internally feeling so completely not um, wanting to be forced into that position. Um, What has helped me find peace with my body and my... Uh, genetics, I guess you could say, Um, in my femininity, where it's like, you can't have body hair, you can't um, have short hair, can't being what the world says, if that makes sense, Um, has been yoga, freeform dance. I was certified as a yoga teacher in November, um, and that has helped me come into my body. I feel like transformation starts inside and then comes Mm -hmm. out. You know, that is growth, that is um, change. But being embodied starts with you. It starts um, from within. So being connected to your breath, being connected to your mental dialogue, kind of what Mm -hmm. you were saying, like um, it starts with what you tell yourself, you know. So anyone can say, oh, your hair looks great. Your outfit looks great. Um, But until you believe that for yourself, you don't, you want to get to the point where you don't need anyone to tell you that. You don't need anyone to tell you you're special or that you're beautiful Mm -hmm. because you know that for yourself. and yeah, yoga and freeform dance, just, just moving your body. It doesn't need to look like anything. What it feels like can be so powerful and transformational. Um, I got a little lost there, so thanks for sticking with me. Oh um, That was perfect. But yeah, that's where I'm at. So
2: Thank you listening. so much. That was perfect. I love your thoughts about embodiment. That is one mm-hmm. way that we can all come back home to ourselves instead of trying to serve a purpose of being looked at, of fulfilling the sights, the hopes of an onlooker that will never serve us. So that your, your thoughts about embodiment are really beautiful. Thank you. Kelsey. Yeah. Um, so I grew up here in Utah.
5: Um, and my first memories of hating my body were when I was eight years old. And I actually believe it was probably before that, um, but I just can't remember it. Uh, so I then that eventually turned into an eating disorder a few years later, unfortunately. And with a couple girls in my neighborhood, We would not eat together, we would call each other if we got hungry, we would exercise incessantly, and unfortunately, that led one of them to die, and it was horrible and life-changing, but I realized, like, at a very young age, oh, I have to eat to live. And so I did, and that, of course, resulted in weight gain, as it should have, but everybody in my life commented on it. My friends, my teachers, my parents, my family, my neighbors, you name it, anyone that saw me We, in our culture, we think, oh, we can make any body comments we want, um, whether that's a a compliment or, you know, like saying saying something negative. So that unfortunately led me to decades of disordered eating, uh, body shame, and eventually I went to therapy, and it was actually in therapy that I was able, my therapist helped me name, I'm fat phobic," And that blew my mind. I'd never even heard that term. Um, and I want to tell you, my definition of fat phobia is the fear of fatness on ourselves, coupled with the systemic hatred of fat bodies. Um, and so we've inherited that. That our country was founded on anti-fatness, anti-blackness, systems of body oppression. Um, so it is not our fault. It's not my fault that I had those narratives, but I did internalize that. And so um, I found intuitive eating, and that was a game changer for me to start healing my relationship with food. But it did not help me dismantle my fat phobia. And so I looked for a program or a group to help me with that, and I couldn't find it. And like you were saying, I realized that with, with the support of my therapist, that I needed to be the change I wished to see. So, I don't feel like I chose this work of body acceptance. I feel like it chose me. And uh, so, I became a body acceptance coach with the mission to dismantle fat phobia because one of the hardest things about fat phobia is the silence and the hiding and the isolation. These topics are very taboo, they're very subversive. There's a lot of money invested in making sure we hate our bodies. Um, so, I wanted to do that. If I wanted to work on dismantling these systems of oppression, both internally, I'm hitting my mic, uh, and and externally, I wanted to do that in community. So I built these workshops, um, small group workshops, with that mission, and really, really proud of um, what I've built. And, uh, you know, but I do believe, like like both of you were saying, this work um, is about, you know, not I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not that I'm not going to expect that fat phobia exists, I know it does. When I can clearly see, oh, I live in a culture that is, that benefits from body oppression, I've inherited this. Um, it's not that I'm not gonna have to navigate what it is to live in a fat body. Uh, I also wanna tell you, I identify as fat and that in and of itself is radical body acceptance. Um, but when we can take back that word, that is typically associated with um, ugly, lazy, gross, uh, you know, all of these negative things. And I can say, this is just a neutral descriptor. I am white. I have long, light brown hair. I'm a woman. I'm fat. That is just me. That is, that's just who I am. And it's, there's nothing bad about that. It just is. So taking on that, I can identify as fat. I can encourage other people to start using that word. This is how we, ba- this is how we break down systemic oppression. And um, so though I teach workshops that is about um, the internal embodiment of, of radical body acceptance, um, this is really with the impact of changing our culture. Because I believe it starts with us, and that trickles out. Um, so even being
2: here is, is a step forward. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hear in your words my own specific love in resilience. All three of you, really. You are able to take what is a personal pain and something that on an individual level you experienced in your life and you were able to see that you are not alone in that pain. You name it, you don't swallow it. You figure out how you can make change. Not just resilience for yourself, but community resilience. The ability to change yourself, to change communities. And it does happen one by one. And collectively, we all rise. It's the only way. And every one of you are speaking about that resilience. It's um, such a hopeful way of seeing the world. And it's the only way. Yeah, and I just want to add on to that. I think it's a real
5: gift when you can see, oh, this is bigger than me. Um, Because the work doesn't stop once you personally feel better or once clothing companies offer my size. Because I hold a lot of privilege, even in (laughs) my fat, not accepted place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that work doesn't stop with yeah. us. And it's such a gift when you can see, oh, this is about more than me. And when you can center, like, okay, we're not, none of us are free till all of us are free. Yeah. Then that is a real gift. That's, it's a gift of, it, it frees me from my, that own narrative, that own oppression. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Reframing the Conversation, Thriving in Your Own Body, on KRCL's Radioactive. Presented by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah, this panel discussion was recorded last month on campus as part of Women's Week.
2: I want to ask another question, and I want all of you to take this how you will. Um, my own personal experience and my work is in, in, some of it is in critiquing body positivity. I believe that body positivity as a concept has become super commodified. It is something that you sell. You sell products by selling, you go girl, you can feel good about yourself, but you better make sure you look good too, or it doesn't count. It's it's capitalism. It's incredibly sexist. Um, it's in many ways racist. So I, I believe that... Um, body positivity, I know that it began as a a fat acceptance movement It was largely started by black women. It was Mm -hmm. started by fat women and black women and fat black women. And it has become this very watered down white thing. I think that that is true for the intersections where we all find ourselves, that a lot of times social movements become in word alone or in ways to just make money through making change in whatever way. Um, I'm wondering if you can each speak to what body positivity means to you a little bit more. What is the work you're trying to do that helps your movement not just be a watered down, you go girl type of thing, if that makes any sense.
4: So I'll start again. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that Curly Me is definitely not a movement. It is, it is a lifetime, lifestyle shift. Mm-hmm. So we are transforming minds of girls at a young age so that they don't grow up thinking that they're not accepted in places um, that may exist in Utah. Mm-hmm. And so movement, I'm not a fan of movements necessarily. I understand that they exist. But I feel like the work that I'm supposed to be or on purpose to do is not going to, like you said, it's not going to stop with me. Yeah. When I'm gone, wherever that, whatever that means, someone else is going to take the baton and keep it going. And so in regards to body positivity, um, it's, it's not always about like your, this side of your body, but we work on the hair mm-hmm. and the mind. And so when you find out, well, a part of the beginning stages of Curly Me, when you find out from parents that their daughters um, don't like their hair as young as three or when we talk about um, body acceptance, um, as young as five, they're adultified. Adultification exists, so adultification bias. There's a study out of Georgetown Law that talks about black girls are, as young as five, um, their bodies are adultified, so like they're not protected. They are seen as older. My, my, myself, I was 13, someone thought I was 16, based off of what my body looked like. No questions, just no, not, when you start talking to a 13 year old, you know they're 13. <laughs> I was one of those girls, you knew I was in elementary school mm-hmm. um, regardless of what my body told you. And so it's really just um, body positivity for me. In ma- media, you don't see a lot of women with hair like mine. Yeah. Um, or if you see women who look like me, you don't see their hair looking like mine. And that's not by accident. That is coming from when black, women were, black men and women were brought to this country, and they were not able to accept their own hair. They, they didn't have the things that they needed to do their hair. And then when they figured out something, they were um, oppressed, um, laws were created, that they couldn't do the things like wear headscarves or they they were supposed to wear headscarves and then that got too cute and people were discriminated against um, discriminating against them or jealous if you look at it just say what it is jealous of what they've had to do transform throughout society, or throughout history in the United States so knowing the history of black hair black bodies in this country um, body positivity Is definitely learning, teaching us, teaching our girls, to make sure that they understand their own selves, their own hair. What do you want to do with your hair? If you want to wear it in an afro like this today, um, that should be okay, and society should accept that. Because my hair doesn't grow like Kelsey. Kelsey. I was gonna say Kelsey, (laughs) like Kelsey's, and that's all right. That doesn't mean you can't politicize something that grows out of my scalp. However, when we try and bring up why you shouldn't discriminate against, then we need policies to tell you not to um, fire me because I choose to wear my hair in braids. And so if you're not familiar with um, the Crown Act, that does exist throughout the country. It started in California. And so um, I think I'm rambling.
2: No, you're not. Tell us about the Crown Act. I think it's incredibly important.
4: (laughs) All right. Um, But the Crown Act started in California in 2019. Um, And if you look up the crown, or crownact.org, you'll find out more information about it. And it basically says that um, men and women like myself that have immutable characteristics, like our hair, this can't be changed. I can straighten it, but if I wet it, it's gonna turn out like this every time. Um, Shouldn't be discriminated against. I should not be fired, I should not, be um, There are cases have been cases in elementary schools specifically and high schools that say that kids can't graduate, can't walk in their graduations because their hair isn't a certain way. And you think, his face is like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. So you think about when you're graduating from high school, how big of a moment that is. And in some public or private schools, they're like, uh-uh, you can't have locks. And you've existed in this school for however long. And this is a case that's happening right now. So you can look it up. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember where it's at, but it's a young man who is not able to graduate because he goes to a private Christian school, and he has locks, and he can't have hair in his face. But this has existed for some time where um, the Crown Act, if passed in their state, they wouldn't be able to necessarily do those types of things. And so we've tried to get it passed here for two years. (laughs) The first year, we were referred to as you people Mm -hmm. and um, shown photos of young children that were not the senator's children. They were black children. And he just thought it was okay black bodies not being protected, to take pictures of these two little kids in a grocery store that he had talked to the, the father and um, I don't know if he got permission or not, but just thinking about that is just like, wow, who who is going to protect these black kids from? I'm not gonna call him a predator. I don't think he was. He had any malicious um, intent, but what makes it okay to just take pictures of kids you don't know? Um, and then in the same breath, call somebody, call us, you people. Yeah. Other us. We're not othered. We're part of, you know, this this state, the, the country, um, but the ignorance that exists in legislation in this in this state is very palatable. This year, I got 43 seconds to speak um, to the crown act about the crown act again and how important it would be, um, especially for young kids growing up in this um, in this state, and it was held again in committee. So. There's definitely an ignorance that exists in, um, in our state when it comes to accepting all types of bodies, um, not just you know your size, but um, hair texture. It exists. So I don't want that to be remiss from the conversation when we're talking about body acceptance.
2: Absolutely. What I hear you say is that body positivity has to go beyond just teaching people to feel good about how they look. We need to move it into legislation that protects you. We can't, on an individual level, just allow people to just feel good, or you're beautiful too. We have to go so much further, or we're not actually protecting the people that are being oppressed. So thank you for that. Yeah. Who else?
5: Um, Yeah, I could. I mean, I am not a fan of the body positivity movement either because it is mostly white women that are thin telling each other they're not fat. Yeah. Um, so it's like the irony of that and then selling products to do just that. So, um, I mean, really, you're talking about all the, the right things and that um, this can, this is more than Oh, I, body positivity, now that's, it's, it's kind of the same side, the different side of the same coin, because when you, you can't really go from I hate my body to I love my body, that is the same thing. You are still in that world of objectification. And so, like, I use a body neutral approach, mm-hmm. um, and I, I like that as a practice, that actually it doesn't really matter if I hate my body or I don't like how I look. I still am worthy of existing and existing safely. Yeah, yeah, um, and being, and like that, that is, uh, loving my body is not um, the goal. And I think that um, some people when they come to work with me, they think, oh no, <laughs> the goal of the end of your workshop is not that I'm gonna love my body. And I said, no, because, um, you know, I say body acceptance is not something that we arrive at. It is a repetitive practice of staying with ourselves as discomfort, again, that we've inherited um, about our own body arises or oppression that we face of I don't fit in this chair, I don't fit in this space, I can't find clothes, I can't get medical care, I can't get life insurance, nobody wants to hire me or promote, right? This is like the systemic oppression that I'm talking about, that, that even when those things arise that um, I can feel neutral about whether or not I love how I look or I love my body because that is not a prerequisite for just existing and being protected and being loved and being
3: respected. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful things, both of you. Um, sort of relating to the media question in this, number two. Um as a transfeminine individual, you know, I have genetics where I grow hair in my body, which is not a traditionally feminine trait because, um, well, the removal of body hair is actually a racist and um, misogynistic patriarchal act um, that was used to separate you know white people, white women, from black women and white people from people of color. Um, Alok, Menon, they are a poet, super big in this movement. So they've been very inspirational to me. I just had to say that. Um, It it does come with like accepting the discomfort that is mostly projected onto you from other people. Um, you know, like I can speak from my own experience. I hated my body hair when I came into my sort of feminine ideal, because it's like no one will take me seriously as a woman, no one will take me seriously as a feminine individual. I can't wear bathing suits, you know, like I paid over a hundred dollars, sort of what you were saying, like we have to pay for or what you were saying earlier, you know, it costs to be a woman, it costs to experience femininity, but not the femininity you want, the femininity that the rest of society expects you to fit into, Um, you know, absolutely ridiculous that I had to put myself through pain, have rashes on my body, so obviously I won't do that again, Um, you -hmm. know, so then I didn't even get to enjoy the benefits of being waxed, um, which is just sick because... I want to wear a bathing suit. I want to enjoy the sun on my skin, the the, you know the water on my skin, Um, and I don't get to do that unless I have the body that you want to look at. It's Mm -hmm. sort of the objectification of our bodies. I don't exist for you to look at or for you to marvel at. I exist because I am. Um, So in media. There is little to no representation of women with body hair or trans feminine individuals with body hair in fashion magazines or editorials or you know whatever the, the height of fashion, and then past that in more like pedestrian fashion at all. Um, so for me, it's personally, I had to start by being afraid with showing my body hair in my clothing and in my in my walking life. Um, And then from there, it's making space for other people to do the same thing. Um, So I think we have a really long way to go in terms of representation in that realm. Um, And maybe we'll get there, Um, but that's just where we're at right now. And that's that's the reality of that. So, yeah.
4: I wanted to kind of go back to the cost Mm -hmm. of beauty. Yeah. The cost. Of beauty, I'll say, um, for black women, black girls, it goes. It's a billion dollar industry in our community. And when we think about um, the, you know body positivity and what you normally would see on um, on different television shows and even the news, I go back to the news because like our, I grew up with my parents watching the news all the time, and it would always be a black woman with straight hair. Um, but how does she get her hair straight? Per- relaxers are expensive and they're chemicals that people put on their bodies, if, if, for those who don't know, um, put on, on their hair. That could be expensive and a health hazard. Some people may do it because they want to and that's okay, but others may do it because I have to have this hair for my job or I have to have this hair because society says I look good this way. And um, it's expensive. It is very expensive. Can you imagine being a college student going every six weeks? Because that's when they tell you to come, yeah. every six to eight weeks. okay? And you have to do a relaxer, you get um, a trim, and you get a style. And normally, that's, we're running about $100 um, every six to eight weeks. And as a college student, I'll tell you right now, um, I don't know where that hundred, hundred dollars is coming from, and so if I have an internship coming up and I don't know how to do my hair or I don't know any braiders or these types of things, it could be, it could be psychologically damaging. And when you have some people who can't walk out the house with, you know, a four hundred dollar sew-in mm-hmm. or a 400, $500, these wigs can run you, okay? Run you some coins. And so the cost of beauty, um, what society says, is expensive and not everybody can afford it. But society will try and make you think that you need to figure out how to fit in the mold. And And it's not just, you know, you have society and you also have your own community. So like I talk about my community was pretty supportive. But we also have Things in our community that's like, oh girl, your hair is naughty. Yeah. And depending on how you take that, my grandma would say that I would laugh it off. It really didn't faze me too much. But it, you go into certain places and some some families are like, you do not leave the house unless a hot comb has touched your head. And there's a there's a systemic or a a reason for that. That's a protection. Yeah. We don't want you to be outcasted. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks didn't learn how to swim, not because they didn't have the, the desire to want to swim, but because when Grandma hot-combed your head on Saturday, Sunday or Saturday, you had to have that last until the next week. And so that starts from a young age, and we don't want our girls to grow up. Now, granted, people aren't hot-combing over the stove as much anymore. We're using flat irons, but why? Is it because you just want this style? Or is it because if I don't have it, I'm not beautiful? I'm not going to be accepted? And we see girls a lot who are like, I got to have braids. I got to have braids. Yes, braids are great. Braids cost money too, okay? (laughs) And a couple years ago, we didn't have as many braiders as we did now. So people were charging you outrageous costs for getting your hair braided. Or getting it retwisted, or that was almost not even, even existent in existence here in Utah. But um, the cost to get your hair braided every two months, or, or I'll leave it in for three, and the damage it causes to your natural hair um, while you leave it in for three and six months, I've heard just countless stories. And it's just like, well, why aren't girls feeling comfortable with their natural hair? I think that's the bigger question. And that's the question that I try and ask um, older girls, not so much younger girls, they may not really know, but older girls can kind of give you some words, just some descriptive words of why they feel the way they feel. Yeah. So I do wanna also mention the cost of beauty, because yeah. Kelsey mentioned about the how we have these products that are pushed. And it's okay for skinny women to be, you know, skinny, <laughs> but but it it becomes Gray, when they're like, "Well, you can be like me." Yeah, girl, ain't nobody trying to be like you. <laughs> yeah,
5: well, and and I'm really, really happy that you're bringing up the cost because one, there's like the literal cost, but there's also the cost of can my life be about more than shrinking myself? Can can we do more with our lives than and especially women? Um, and and th- now I always say that like, fat phobia impacts all of us. None of us are free from the harms of it. And I see men being impacted more and mm-hmm. more and toxic masculinity says, men can't even talk about this. We, men can't even like say, hey, I feel, um, I feel bad about myself. So I mean, there's, all of us are impacted by that. But I just think, man, what could we do if we didn't waste so much money, time and energy hating our own bodies, on buying products to shift our own bodies. Can we do more with our lives? Can we do more with our community? And that cost, I mean, it shakes me to my core. And uh, so I'm really happy that you've, you've added that to the conversation because the brain space mm-hmm. that that captures, that that holds hostage is, is not okay.
2: The collective burden that is required for people who identify as female is great. And you guys represent intersections of that, at race, at gender identity, at body size. These are ways that women are asked to take on a massive, expensive, painful burden. A portion of our lives and our consciousness has to be dedicated to how we appear. Mm -hmm. And uh, that I'm so glad we're having this conversation because once you see it, it's the first step to fighting back like each of you are doing. Your own lives and missions are doing that work. And when we all feel the truth of this message, we all take it upon us however we can to change, to change ourselves, our perceptions of ourselves and our perceptions of everybody else in this room. And then we take that out and try to figure out how we can make real change, and we all can. And it starts with how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about other people. It extends so far beyond that. The change makers just in this room and listening on this stream, at the University of Utah and beyond, you guys are the people that will continue on in these changes. Thank you so much for your thoughts here, you guys, and for your work.
0: Dr. Lexi Kite from Reframing the Conversation, Thriving in Your Own Body, presented by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion during Women's Week at the University of Utah last month. Panelists included Alicia Derso Garfield of Curly Me, student T. Anthony, and body acceptance coach Kelsey Jepson. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the discussion, including a Q&A section we just didn't have time to fit in, and a transcript. A big thank you to Eunice Contreras from EDI, who made sure to get the audio we shared with you tonight. EDI's Reframing the Conversation series is off until the fall, when they'll be back to continue gathering experts from across campus and the community to spark important conversations around racism, othering, and safety. I'm Laura Jones, and thank you for plugging into your community with Radioactive tonight and every weeknight at 6 here on KRCL. Questions, comments, suggestions, just send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. Till next time, have a great night.